It is really good to be here this morning. I'm make sure I've got this on. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Acts 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. Acts 11. When uh, my wife and I walked in, we noticed the book of missionaries uh, and their newsletters and support or in, uh, support letters, and so we were able to read through that. And we recognized some of the names of the missionaries you guys already support, which is always fun for us uh, to be in churches with connections and multiple people here we already know. If you were unable to be here during the Sunday school hour, uh, my wife and I, I should probably introduce my wife, she's sitting up here, Natalie, uh, my wife and I presented our uh, future ministry that the Lord is leading us to in the Netherlands, and I started off with the question, uh, when you think of the Netherlands, what is it that you think of? And you know, we got answers of tulips, and there's a windmill on the screen already. Uh, you think of wooden clogs, maybe you think of canals or ice skating on the canals. Um, you think of Amsterdam and the really tall skinny buildings or things like that. Uh, when we think of the Netherlands, especially now after the past several years, then we do think of some of those things, but we also just think of the reality that over half of the country is non-religious. Over the half of the country uh, claims no religious affiliation at all. So when you look at different continents and countries around the world, you see uh, what are the general uh, religions that are represented as the highest, uh, highest attended or highest subscribing religion in those regions of the world. And in Western Europe, atheism is, is the predominant religion, if you will. When we think of uh, when we think of religion, and we think of religion in Western Europe, we probably think a lot of the Christian heritage, or at least the religious of Catholicism, or certain types of Lutheranism, or Protestantism. We think of these things in Western Europe, but what we're looking at in Western Europe, where the Netherlands is in 2023, is a vast majority of people are non-religious. 55% of the Netherlands claims no religious affiliation at all, and so there, Atheism is you're going to be your highest religion. And then, of course, you have a Catholic presentation there. You have what they call a Protestant uh, presentation or representation there. Um, that Protestant church, unlike what we would see here in the States, that Protestant church does not actually preach what the Bible clearly says about the gospel. Um, you only have about a 4%, and we think probably a little bit lower than that population that would actually have a true gospel presence. The country is about 17.4, 17.5 million people uh, crammed into a country that's about the size of New Hampshire and Vermont. Um, so it's a very, very densely populated country. Many people there uh, have been so far turned off from the idea of there being a God. And so, Lord willing, our plan is to do church planting there in the, in the Netherlands, in the city of Bergen-op-Zoom. That's relatively in the southern border, close to Belgium. Perhaps if you're sitting here asking the Netherlands, well, where's Holland? It's the same country. The, uh, Holland is just a nickname for the Netherlands, and the people we'll be working with are the Dutch people. We get those questions quite often. As you can see, as you walked in, we have a table in the back with information on there. There's prayer cards that we would love for you to take as a reminder to pray for us. We also have our contact information on there as well. As you guys have questions this morning, we'd love to interact and answer any of those questions after the service. We'll be back there, uh, hopefully get a chance to say hi. I saw a couple of people already try our uh, Dutch treat that we have on our back table. It's called double zout drop, and that is double salt black licorice. Um, it is a very 
common snack that many, many Dutch people enjoy. If you have not had it or if you have not been down to Pella and tried it from Yarzma Bakery or anything like that, let me encourage you to try it. It's an experience. <laughs> so I want to encourage you that way. And again, we'd love the uh, opportunity to connect with you, both my wife and I. I mentioned I was looking through the book of uh, the missionaries that your church already supports and partners with and noticing some of those names that Natalie and I personally know, some of those missionaries. When you think of your missionaries that you partner with, what is it about them that you like? What is it about them that you appreciate or that you've gotten to know? One of the things that is really, really enjoyable about supporting missionaries is getting to know them when they're back in the States or, or in our stage uh, where we're raising money to go to the field and you get to know your supported missionaries. Uh, for the past two years, I guess, uh, for, for two years, uh, I was the assistant pastor at our sending church, Chisago Lakes Baptist Church, we're about two and a half hours north of you here. And so uh, I was the assistant pastor and Natalie and I both served on our church's missions committee while, we were, uh, while I was in that role. And so we got the opportunity to interact with some of our missionaries, but so many of them we've only had interacted with through newsletters because we didn't get a chance to see them back on their furlough. There's one couple in particular, though, that our church supported that had been missionaries in France for 50 years, Bernard and Bernice. Now, Bernard is a Frenchman. He's as French as it gets. And Bernice is an American, and they met here in the States, and then they went back to France as missionaries. And we had heard a lot about Bernard and Bernice. We had never met them. We'd read their letters. But they were finally back on furlough visiting churches, and we got a chance to meet them. And our whole missions committee had lunch with them after church. And those were the times that we really got to know our missionaries outside of just maybe the husband preaching or their presentation. And so we get to know Bernard, and we get to see a very French sense of humor. Things that we, in the missions committee, we would drop a joke here or say something that everybody is cracking up. And you look over at Bernard and just that very dry sense of humor where stone cold face where we realize that joke did not land. But then just several moments later, Bernard would say something or Bernard would crack a joke and he would be in stitches till he's red in the face and everybody around the table is looking at him like, yes, that was humorous. Thank you for sharing that. And you can tell there's that sense of humor that just does not overlap. But see, when Bernard would laugh, we all, we all know those people that have that kind of laugh. That when they laugh, you cannot help but laugh. Even if what they said was not funny, their laugh is enough to get you laughing. And those were just some of the aspects about Bernard that we got to personally learn about. We never would have gotten that from a newsletter. Some of the things that really impressed us about them, even when they shared their ministry and in talking with them over lunch, was even just how they very specifically phrased the work that God was doing in France and had been doing for 50 years. Imagine 50 years of your life. Many of you can't even imagine 50 years yet. 50 years of your life being spent serving the Lord in church planning ministry. And so he's sharing with us all the highs and the lows of 50 years of ministry every single time saying God's ministry in France the ministry that God stewarded to us in France, or God's work that he was doing that we were a part of, or some variation of that, never once taking credit for my ministry or our ministry. It was always God's ministry. And that really made an impact on me because I have sat, I grew up as a pastor's kid, and we're now on deputation. I have heard countless missionary presentations. None of them have I ever heard so clear 
of giving credit to what God is doing, not the hand of the missionary. I was so impressed with that. And as we look at Acts 11, we're going to see the hand of God. It is not any human, but it is the hand of God. Our big idea, if you will, is this, that God desires that his church follows his global plan for the nations. God desires that his church follows his global plan for the nations. Before we read our text this morning, we're going to read through it together in just a moment, but before we do that, if you've read through the book of Acts before, you know that it's a narrative. It's a story of a progression of history. So to bring us up to speed, the gospel has just been now, if you will, freely open, freely given to Gentiles, to non-Jews. If you remember at the day of Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to believers, but it was still so isolated in the city of Jerusalem that now we see the gospel spread going to Gentiles, to non-Jews. In Acts 10, you see the story of a man named Cornelius, a Gentile who received the Holy Spirit. He and his family were saved. That was, if you will, think of it as a spark. The spark of the gospel that then would set a blaze of fire that would spread outside of just Jerusalem. So with that in mind, we get to verse 18 of chapter 11, and the church in Jerusalem hears about this. They fell silent and they glorified God saying, and here's our big pivotal point, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the pivotal turning point in the book of Acts where we see the gospel now going forward far outside of just the Jews. So let me read our text together, starting in verse 19, going to the end of the chapter in verse 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So what we want to look at this morning is this church in Antioch, this church in Antioch. And we actually want to see three aspects, three characteristics, or if you will, three milestones in the life of this church. We want to look at the start of this missional church, the instruction to it, and then the laborers that were sent from it. Each one of those, we're going to look at a life of this church. So let's begin with the start of the missional church. How does the gospel even get to Antioch in the first place? At the beginning of our text, you'll remember in verse 19 that there was a persecution that arose over Stephen. Back in Acts chapter 7, Stephen was martyred, the first, martyr that, first martyrdom that we have recorded in Scripture. He was martyred for his faith, and because of this, Christians are running because of persecution. 
Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, are fleeing for their lives because people are not, the Jewish religious leaders, the Roman Empire, are not in favor of them practicing following after this Jesus Christ. And so they are running and running from persecution. And where are they going? They're going to Phoenicia and to Cyprus and up to Antioch. Now, if you're anything like me, when you read through names of cities and regions in scripture, it's always helpful to visualize where in the world we're talking about. So hopefully this gives you a little bit of a picture. The gold star there in the bottom is the city of Jerusalem, kind of where everything started. And so now we have people that are running to the region of Phoenicia, running to Cyprus, and getting a boat, and running up to Antioch, fleeing persecution that is coming. So Antioch there, roughly, we're looking at about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And as they begin running, as they're running, what happened? But some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, in verse 20, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. As they are running, they are sharing the gospel. They are sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died, buried, and rose again, and that people can have a relationship with Jesus. They are spreading this in the city of Antioch. Now let's learn just a little bit about Antioch to help us frame that a little bit. I mentioned it's about 300 miles north from Jerusalem. Antioch would have been the third largest city in the Roman Empire at this time. It would have been behind the capital city of Rome and then the city of Alexandria. Antioch, because of its size, roughly about 500,000 people, because of its size as a major city in the empire, many people from around would come and settle in Antioch. And so in Antioch, you have a wide variety of people from all over the world, all types of religions, all types of practices, all types of sexual immorality, focusing all in the city of Antioch. One ancient Roman satirist actually described Antioch as the place where all the corruption from Antioch would flow down the river into the capital city of Rome. So this satirist was actually saying that much of the corruption you saw in Rome was heavily influenced by the city of Antioch. So we have a city that, from our perspective, would be maybe an uncommon place for Christians to want to flee to. And yet we see Christians who are running for their lives fleeing to Antioch, sharing the gospel along the way. They're sharing the gospel to Hellenists. Now, many times when we think Hellenists, we think Greek-speaking Jews, and that is true. There's also the nuance here, though, that they are speaking to those who are not of a Jewish background at all. In Antioch, we're out of Jerusalem, we're out of the region of Judea, we now see both a Jew and a Gentile mix, a Jew and a non-Jew. They're spreading the gospel. What is fun to see is that this is actually the first time recorded in scripture that evangelism, sharing the gospel, is done by the average person. Up to this point, we've been seeing it from the apostles, from the church leaders. This is the first time we're seeing the average Christian, we don't even know their names, spreading the gospel as they run on per, or from persecution. And so now that Cornelius, if you remember I mentioned, now that Cornelius and his family have the gospel and that they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and this is now happening to Gentiles. They are sharing the gospel, and what happens, people are saved. Look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now these people, this mix of Jews and Gentiles in this non-Jewish culture of Antioch, accept 
the gospel. And notice how Luke, the author of Acts, notice how Luke says this. The hand of the Lord was with them. It was not the charismatic and wonderful personality of these guys attracted so many people to Jesus. No. It was the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number turned to the Lord. God's hand was the one at work, which, if you think about it, fits so perfectly into the book of Acts, that God's hand was building his church. It also, in some sense, serves as a reminder to us that what? It is God who builds his church. When we have that opportunity to share the gospel with our coworker or our neighbor or our family member, and we walk away from that opportunity kicking ourselves because, oh, that didn't come out right. Oh, I wish I had said this. You know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Good news, it is God that is building his church. We can take such comfort that it is God who keeps his promises, and God has promised to build his church. So this great number of believers in verse 21 come to the Lord. And what happens when you have a group of believers come together? Good news, we're doing it right here this morning. When you have a group of believers come together, there is a church. We have this group of brand new believers that are meeting together. And again, immature believers, not just being new converts, but coming together. So there's this young church that has just been birthed in the city of Antioch. And so what happens, we start seeing our cycle start to take place. We see the start of this church. But then what happens is we see that there's instruction to the missional church. There's instruction given to the missional church. Look with me at verse 22. The report of this, so everything that just happened in Antioch, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So everything that just happened in Antioch kind of trickles down and rumors down 300 miles to the city of Jerusalem, and the church in Jerusalem catches wind of this, and they are curious. What is happening? What has just happened in Antioch? And so the church sends somebody, okay, we should send somebody to go see what is happening. Now, we don't know why the church in Jerusalem felt like they needed to do this. I tend to think that perhaps since the gospel and the church and everything kind of started happening in Jerusalem, maybe they're thinking, oh, something just happened in Antioch and we don't know anything about it. That started here. Let's go send somebody to see if this is legitimate. I don't know. I tend to think that perhaps they felt some responsibility toward what was happening. But we're not given that. What we are given is that they sent some type of duty to send somebody, and they send Barnabas to Antioch. Now, this is not the first time we've seen Barnabas in the book of Acts. We've already seen him a couple times. He was in chapter 4. If you remember, if you've read through Acts in chapter 4, he was the one that sold property and gave it to the church. He's the antithesis of Ananias and Sapphira who sold property, gave it to the church, lied to the Holy Spirit, and dropped dead. He's the good example. He's like, hey, this is what Barnabas did. So he sold property. He gave it to the church. In chapter 9, Barnabas was the one who actually stuck up for Saul. If you remember the conversion of Saul, and a lot of Christians didn't really buy it, and they didn't believe him, Barnabas said, no, this man is legitimate. He stuck up for him. Barnabas had already built a reputation in the church that was trustworthy. Is it any wonder that the church would look at him and say, Barnabas, go see what's happening. Go discern 
Is God at work here? What, what is going on in Antioch? Is it any wonder that Barnabas is nicknamed in scriptures the son of encouragement? Barnabas would have been the logical choice to go see the work of God of what was happening up in Antioch. Verse 24 gives us a little bit of his reputation. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. In verse 23, he gets to Antioch, and he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He sees what is happening, and he says, this is a good thing. This, what God is doing here in Antioch, is a good thing. You new believers, you keep going. You remain faithful. You remain steadfast in what you have learned. And what is the result of this? At the end of verse 24, and a great many people were added to the Lord. The church grows again, if you will. This is now twice that we see the hand of God at work building his church with groups of believers, groups of sinners coming to Christ. People are being added to this church in Antioch. And we, we sit here like, whew, wish we had that. Where people are just in, in masses are getting saved and coming into church. And, and, and there's an excitement and Barnabas is like, this is great. But then we get to a problem. I need help. There needs to be a team here because this is happening so fast. So what happens? A great many people were added to the Lord, verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Barnabas goes to build a team. He goes to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So if you recall, I mentioned that so Barnabas was the one who stuck up for Saul at his conversion. When other believers didn't buy it, Barnabas said, no, this guy is legitimate. This is sincere. And if you remember, Saul was preaching the gospel, and people didn't like it, so they sought to kill him, and he escaped from Jerusalem, and he went to Tarsus, and this is like two to three years earlier. So now Barnabas is going to Tarsus to find Saul after two to three years to figure out, hey, I need you to come help me. So he goes and he finds him and brings him back to Antioch. Exciting things are happening in Antioch. And so he goes, and what happens, verse 26 for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples are first called Christians. For an entire year, Barnabas and Saul, together as a team, were teaching doctrine, teaching the church. Why? Because new believers need to know what does it look like to follow God? What does it look like to be a Christian? What does it look like to live out what God has given us in this book. How can you ever expect, even think of people you have known that have gotten saved, or think of when you got saved. Nobody goes from baby brand new Christian to like pillar of the church who's serving in every single capacity. That doesn't happen overnight. We call this discipleship. When people come alongside believers to help them grow to walk alongside them into maturity in Christ. Think of it this way. Think of somebody that you have led to the Lord. That's an exciting thing when you are a part of watching God work in the heart of somebody. And you see them come to the Lord. And you're so excited and you say, Welcome to the family of God. I am so thrilled for you. All right. God bless you. And you walk away. 
And we look at that, we're like, ah, don't do that. What do we do? When somebody comes to Christ, we plug them into a church. We walk alongside with them. That is exactly the pattern we see Saul and Barnabas doing here in Antioch. For an entire year, they taught the believers. Those who had accepted the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Something that would have been such a foreign concept that somebody died on a cross, a humiliating death, rose again, and now you can have eternal life. Something that would have been so countercultural to what the Roman Empire would have been used to. And yet, training and teaching. It's interesting if you look at the end of 26, verse 26, it says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It's a little, a little side note here, that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Most likely, this term was not actually given as a good thing. It was more of a, a, a practicality thing, if you will. Let me explain. It was a way that people in Antioch likely would have been associating these people together because they're not just Jews. So we have Jews, we have Gentiles. We can't lump these people together by ethnicity. They don't fit our Roman culture society of hailing Caesar as emperor or emperor Caesar as divinity. Like, where do we fit these people well, they follow this Christ person. They follow the teachings of Christ. They fit together. They always talk about Christ. They're associated with this Christ. You're a Christian. It likely would have actually been a derogatory term as a convenient way of lumping these people together. And yet when we think of the term Christian today, man, we can slap Christian on anything. I'm a Christian because I've got my cool little Christian radio station sticker on the back of my car. That makes me a Christian. I've got the little fish on the back of my car. I'm a Christian. We can slap Christian on anything, but even the term Christian, what would that be? Is there an association with Jesus Christ? Could somebody look at your life, without your bumper sticker, could somebody look at your life and say, you are closely associated with Jesus Christ? Because you are closely associated with Jesus Christ, I know you are a Christian. Or do you have that coworker or that neighbor that has never once heard you utter the name of Jesus in the 10 years that you've known them? Would they have any validation or any proof that you are associated with Jesus Christ? Do we wear the title of Christian proudly as a reflection of who Jesus Christ is? So we have seen the start of this missional church. How God's hand was at work in, in believers coming or sinners coming to Christ in mass. Then we see the instruction how Paul and Barnabas discipled and trained for a year. And we want to see this now, the life of this church, come full circle, that the laborers sent, the laborers from the missional church. This is the exciting part in any church's life when we start to see a cycle, a cycle of life. And we get to this third step. This is when there's that transition from kind of a baby new church to a mature church of believers that are sending out their own gospel workers. And how do we see that playing out practically? Well, they meet a need. There's a need there. Look with me at verse 27 and 28. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. 
So, so there's this problem that there's a coming famine. God, using the, the sign gifts at this time, validating the, the establishment of the church, uses a prophet to say there is a coming famine. Now, oftentimes in our North American culture, we struggle with the idea of famine because we do not live in a part of the world where famine is common. We do not live in a part of the world where a famine, to this degree, really truly resonates with us. In the Middle East, in this part of the world, when there's a famine, this is devastating news. This isn't just, oh, don't use your sprinkler for the week. This is, where are we going to get food? Like, I don't know where my next meal is coming from, kind of famine. This would have been a devastating thing. And so, because of this famine, we now have a problem with believers of, what are we going to do? Within the reign of Emperor Claudius, Luke gives us a little bit of a note here that this took place in the days of Claudius. There were actually five famines that happened during his reign between AD 41 and 54. This one likely would have been the most severe of these famines happening in AD 47. We can pinpoint an almost exact year to when this thing would have been happening. There's this great famine. There's a problem and this is where we start to see the maturity of this church shine. They've been discipled for a year. What do they do? Well, there's a solution. Look at verse 29 and 30. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So these believers, Antioch, up here, 300 miles north of Jerusalem... They hear about this famine. They say, what can we do to help? How can we help our brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are in Judea, the region where Jerusalem was? How can we help? They go to meet a need, sending relief to the churches there in Judea. And so if, you, if you've followed the pattern of these believers in the church, as we've seen in Acts 4, or in Acts 2, Acts 4, now this, believers are being characterized by their generosity and love for one another. In Acts 2, at the birth of the church, when you read through that and you see believers were fellowshipping with one another and meeting needs of one another and selling things, then you get to Acts 4, and again, believers are selling property, Barnabas as an example, and giving it to the church. There's this aspect of believers taking care of their own and being generous and giving of what they have. They are, and we come to Acts 11 where the church is setting up its own resources for the believers down in Judea. Generosity and love for one another as believers is a consistent mark of Christianity. Is a consistent mark of someone whose life has been changed by Jesus Christ. What is fun to see is when we see that not just happening in scripture but we see that happening today for example last year in last winter of 2022 when natalie and i were in the netherlands together then the day that we flew in and the day that we landed in amsterdam was the day that russia began their full frontal assault on ukraine obviously all over the news 
what an interesting day to land in Europe. Let me, let me tell you. So we land in Europe, and of course, we're getting phone calls and texts from friends and family back in the States. Are you okay? And we're like, we're a couple countries away from Ukraine, okay? But there were a lot of questions, even there from the Dutch people, of what does this mean? Is this going to be World War III across Europe? Like, we're all kind of wondering, and we're sitting here like, hmm. What a, what a time to land in Europe. So this is all happening, and we get there just before a Sunday. So our first Sunday in the Netherlands, we were at this church that, Lord willing, will be landing back in when we move there. And people, just like we were here in America, people are asking questions. What is this going to mean? Are we about to go to war across the entire continent again? Is this World War III? People are confused, and, and we don't know what this is going to mean. But then within one week of being there, the next Sunday that we were there, we saw that church in the city of Bergen-op-Zoom mobilize immense relief to believers in Ukraine. It was so incredible to watch. Within one week, then that church had mobilized a team of people to raise resources for believers who were trying to get out of Ukraine before things got really bad. There's a woman in the church whose brother was a pastor in Slovakia near the Ukrainian border and had set up an entire relief station for people who were fleeing, giving the gospel to those who weren't saved, giving resources and help to those, well, to all people that were coming out of Ukraine. And within one week, the church that we were at were mobilizing a ton of resources to send down to Slovakia for people coming out. That was incredible to see the body of Christ so quickly acting on behalf of of the needs of believers. And no doubt, you are probably familiar with ministries who also did the same thing at that time, who pulled resources together for Ukraine. Isn't it amazing when we see the body of Christ have a genuine love and care for one another that they act, that they mobilize together? When our attention is given to meeting the needs of believers, we are showing a genuine love for one another that only points to a genuine love for Christ. Genuine believers will genuinely love Christ's people. And we see this church, having only been around for a year, already pulling resources to help in a time of need. And so how do they do this? They send out Barnabas and Saul from among themselves. They send them out to go do this. I hope you're starting to make some connections of sending. This idea that churches send out gospel workers, send out workers to do ministry. Have you ever wondered why it is that local churches send missionaries? We are being helped and we are being supported by our mission board, Baptist Mid Missions, but it is not Baptist Mid Missions that is sending us to the Netherlands. It is Chisago Lakes Baptist Church in partnership with other supporting churches. Local churches send missionaries. Missionaries do not wake up one morning and say, you know what, let's go move halfway around the world. Let's go start a church. You do not find the idea of a solo laborer, solo, solo missionary in scripture. You see the idea of gospel workers being sent from a church. So they send Saul and Barnabas down to do the relief work there. But then they come back. At the end of chapter 12, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. They go down to Jerusalem. They do the work that the church had sent them out to do, bringing relief to the believers. And then they come back and give report. What do we call that? Furlough. When you give report of here's what God has been doing, 
through the finances, you've been supporting your missionaries around the world, and they come back to give report because this is what God has been doing. And if you want to see that cycle continue, if you look at the first part of chapter 13, the church, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, sends out Paul and Barnabas again. We know that as their first missionary journey. There is a cycle of churches being planted, maturing, sending out gospel laborers to plant another church, and you repeat. And we see that beginning first as a church planting ministry in chapter 13. But all the while, God is using his church to send out laborers to go do ministry, to come back, and to report. Why do we look at that? Because God's plan for the gospel is so much bigger than what we see here in St. Ansgar, in Iowa, in the Midwest, in America. God's plan for the gospel is so much more global than what we see within our borders here. And we look at Antioch and we see that it is a church comprised of both Jews and Gentiles that should have nothing in common and yet have everything in common because of the work of Christ. So let me bring this full circle. Let me bring this full circle with this question. What part are you playing in God's plan for the nations? What part are you playing with God, in God's plan for the nations? As we trace through the book of Acts, through chapter 11, we see that God's hand is at work in Antioch. God's hand has not stopped 2,000 years later. God has promised to build his church and is still building his church. So what part are we playing in that? We see in the text how he, he built his church through the start, through the instruction, through the laborers sent from the missional church, but that was not a one-and-done event. If it was, we would not have missionaries today. So what role do you play? And please note that the question is not, are you playing a role? The question is, what role? If God's heartbeat is for the nations, we should be playing a part in that to some degree. Let me give you six ideas of what that may look like. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but it maybe is a good place to start. How are you playing, or what are you doing in God's plan for the nations? Number one is the obvious, sharing Jesus with others. This is the one that you expect, okay, the visiting missionary is going to tell us to share Jesus with others. Who is it that God has put in your sphere of influence that does not yet know Jesus Christ? Somebody that Pastor Aaron is never going to meet. Somebody that I am never going to meet, but God has put into your world for you to share Jesus with. Who is it that you know that still needs Jesus? And of course, we look at that happening in our immediate context in St. Ansgar and the surrounding community, but also globally. Who is it that we're praying that God will bring in our lives in the Netherlands for us to share Jesus with? Number two, do you love to pray for people will pray regularly for your missionaries. Those who are doing the work of church planting, uphold them in prayer. They need it. Hopefully this is not just something we do in our Sunday morning services. Very key to do. But hopefully this is something throughout the week. We pray for our supported missionaries. Prayer has become almost the easy thing. I'll pray for you. And we never do it. Why wouldn't we take just a few moments to bring before the throne of grace those who are doing gospel work overseas? Or your pastor, for that matter. 
praying regularly for gospel workers. Pray for your missionary partners and encourage others to pray. Number three, communicate with your missionaries. This is something that we live in a day and age where this has never been easier. Internet has changed everything. Video call them. Send them a text on WhatsApp. Send them an email. Send them a handwritten letter. The mail system has improved around the world. Do something that communicates with your missionary to encourage them. Because when you encourage your missionary, you encourage their ministry that God is using them for on the field, and you help keep them on the field longer. Communicate with them. How about praying for them? And then communicate, I am praying for you. How can I pray more specifically? Number four, send a gift. Instantly, we probably think money. And money is super helpful. Obviously, we need to raise 100% of our financial support to go to the field. But consider what creative gifts you could send to encourage your missionary partners. What is it that maybe they miss from home? Maybe that's sending Christmas gifts. And we know some countries that makes it very, very difficult. But many countries you can. What is it that their kids, what snack, what food do they miss from the States that you could send their kids? Our missionaries, our missionary coworkers in the Netherlands, they have three kids. They miss so much Oreos and Twizzlers. When we got to visit, we brought them a box of Oreos, we brought them some Twizzlers. It's silly, it's trite, but any parent here knows when you encourage a child, you as the parent are encouraged. When you encourage the parent, you encourage the missionary. When you encourage the missionary, you encourage the ministry. When you encourage the ministry, you help them stay on the field for what God has called them to do. Sending a gift is an easy way to encourage your partners. One of the biggest encouragements that I am so looking forward to when we have this opportunity is go to visit your missionaries. One of the things that I have heard countless missionaries say is we had so-and-so from one of our supporting churches come to visit. See what God is doing in person. You already have been investing your finances, your prayer, your time. Why not go see a little picture of what God has been using you to help partner with? Go visit them and encourage them on the field. Some of your missionaries may not even have coworkers. They might be there by themselves. They could use some encouragement. Go visit them. Again, we live in a time where that is so easy. And then lastly is, have you considered going to the field yourself? One of the things that we always encouraged our teens and our youth group up in Minnesota was, I want you to wrestle once with, could God use you in ministry? Could God use you in missions? If this has never once been an option on your mind where you have never at least once considered it, let me encourage you to consider that today. This is not something that is only solely for the high school student or the college student or the young adult who doesn't know what he's doing yet. We were at a missions conference back in January, and one of the missionary couples there were in their mid-50s. They had just become empty nesters, and like, we probably have 15 years before we retire. We're going to go do that. We're going to go do missions overseas for the Lord. Like, how often do you hear that happening? God can use you for ministry. And if you've never once considered that, wrestle with that today. God desires that his church follows his global plan for the nations. What part are you playing in that? What part am I playing in that? As we look at God's hand in the book of Acts, specifically in our text in Acts 11, as we see God's hand at work, God is continuing to still keep his promise that he will build his church. Would we keep our mind 
global in his plan. Let me go ahead and pray. God, we are so grateful for what you have even shown us that you've done in the past in Acts, but Lord, what you are continuing to do today. Through the hands of the partners that St. Ansgar Baptist partners with around the world here in the United States, Lord, I ask that you would encourage each one of these missionaries for what you've called them to do. Lord, I pray that you would encourage this church in their support, in their partnership with what you're doing around the world and what you are doing right here. Lord, I pray that you would give this church many, many gospel opportunities and discipleship opportunities. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to be faithful to what you have called us to do as disciples of Christ. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.